This morning's scripture reading comes from John chapter 4, verses 21 through 26, and chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. Please follow along in your Bibles or as the text is presented on the screens above. I will be reading from the New Living Translation today. Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed, it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Thanks, Emily. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. My name is JD. I'm one of the pastors here at Pine Lake Covenant Church. And uh, I get the distinct pleasure of sharing the word with you this morning. Um, normally I do worship, but uh, every now and then I get a chance to do this. And, and, I, and I love it. Now, there's a temptation for every preacher, right? We come up here and... It's like, I have to be funny, or I have to be this or that. And this morning, I just really want uh, to share something from my heart, share something that is meaningful. So I'm going to try very, very hard not to entertain you. <laughs> I'm going to try to just be honest and genuine uh, with you this morning. We've been in a sermon series called Immerse, where we've been reading through the New Testament all throughout Lent, and it's been quite a journey. Uh, And we've been doing this thing where we've been having these cards, uh, they're at your chairs now, and I wanted to show you this thing that came across uh, our staff desk this week. And so this is um, a picture that was given to us. We had permission to post it and use it, so no one was embarrassed in the process of this. We're okay, right? Uh, But this is like the Apostles' Creed, and um, you've got images there of you know, Jesus raising in stone. And there's Easter eggs um, at the cross, which I had not known. Um, That, they did not teach me in seminary, but this, I got it this time. But it's a wonderful, wonderful thing, right? We believe all ages all growing all the time, and there's reasons why we say the creed, there's reasons why we read scripture together. You know, children are writing truth like this. And so there's cards in front of you again this week. If you feel so inspired to draw, by all means, you can. We won't embarrass you. But if you have a question or a comment, you can also write those too. We would love to hear from you. We really want to create a culture where we say it's okay to ask questions because this is a safe place for that. Um, I have just one other quick announcement. Easter to me is one of my most favorite moments of the year. It's where we remember the hope of resurrection. And one of the things that I love doing, that I grew up doing, is having lilies to remember those who've passed on before us. And so, if you would like to um, uh, bring a lily for that Sunday, you know, what we'll, you can bring it between Monday, Thursday, and Saturday. We'll say this again next week, so don't worry if you don't catch the details. Um, you know, we'll have the, a card with like the names of uh, your people on there uh, that you want to remember, and then we'll set them across, and we'll have a moment our service where we say Christ is risen he is risen indeed and you know the collective hope of resurrection that we feel in that moment and so lilies you can bring them to us all right let's jump in so the sermon title for this week is in spirit and in truth Uh, how many of you know who Paul Harvey is anyone yes okay I love Paul Harvey all right. I grew up listening to him. My dad was a huge Paul Harvey fan. We actually listened to more AM radio than FM radio. I honestly had no clue that um, 
that, uh, that there were FM channels because I just kept listening to Paul Harvey for most of my life. But um, Paul Harvey had this segment called The Rest of the Story. All right, and this was my favorite story. Um, the rest of the story was a three-minute glory fest. What he would do was that he would tell a story about someone or something. Arvi, can you take me out of these front monitors? Really? I'm getting feedback. That's going to drive me crazy all morning. Take me out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Going back to the story. Paul Harvey would tell a story about someone or something that you knew, but you didn't know what he was saying until the very, very end. So one of my favorite segments is he talks about this hapless barkeep, okay, who got in trouble with the law not once but twice. And he's standing before the judge, and the judge is like, listen, guy, I can't do anything for you. You owe all this money, and fortunately it's, it's, it's yours because you own the bar now. And if you want to go do something, do yourself a favor and go learn about the law. And so uh, this barkeep takes the judge's advice, studies law, passes the bar, uh, decides that he wants to be a lawyer, so he does that, and then he goes into politics, and later he says these words, four score and seven years ago. He was part of uh, helping free the slaves and played a huge role in a war that split our country. That hapless barkeep was Abraham Lincoln. So the rest of the story, right, is this thing where you hear a story. It's a three-minute story, and you're like, I don't know who it's going to be about or what it's about, but it's always about someone famous. It's always about someone famous. Now, besides learning some very interesting facts about many historic and uh, important people, I learned something very important as well. And what I learned is this. I learned that stories influence the way we see people and the words they say. All right, stories influence the way we see people and the words they say. What that means is that many times we have these phrases or these words or these individuals who live lives and we know them, but if you actually know the stories behind their lives, it kind of changes the meaning of those things a little bit. Now, as a worship pastor, I rarely preach on worship. Okay? I don't like doing it. The reason why is because people are like, well, you're a worship pastor, so you should preach on worship. And I'm like, there's a lot of things in the Bible besides worship. Worship is really important, but there's a lot of wonderful things. But this week, today, I'm preaching on worship because we came across this phrase in our reading that I just can't get past without not preaching on it. And the phrase was this, we worship in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. These are words that churches plaster on their walls. I've seen sanctuaries filled with banners and signs, and people say, when we worship, we worship in spirit and in truth. And what I want to say to you this morning is that if we don't understand the story from which they arise, we'll completely miss what these words are really all about. And what Jesus is trying to say to us, what God is trying to say about how we can actually live into them. So I'm going to do my best Paul Harvey impression. Okay? Not, not, no, the rest of the story. Not like that. I'm not going to talk like that the whole sermon. But I am going to try to share with you the rest of the story related to these words. But uh, in order to do that, I'm going to need some help, okay? St. Ignatius of of Loyola was really big on using imagination and spiritual practice. And so this morning, uh, we're going to do a bit of that. We're going to exercise our imaginations. I need four brave volunteers who don't mind being on stage uh, and reading out loud, perhaps with a theatrical personality. I need four. So if you're like, that's me, just raise your hand. Anna, come on. Okay, Eddie, awesome, Ed, okay, and we need one more, and Nina, sure, Nina, come on, okay, 
Oh, this is gonna this is gonna be interesting. <laughs> you guys don't know what I'm talking about. Oh, this is gonna be interesting. Okay, all right. So, um, uh, how am I gonna do this? <laughs> okay, all right. So, hold on a second. Let me talk to my actors. I now present to you our readers' theater. <laughs> Wonderful. I'm the narrator, okay? So, uh, obviously, I'm going to do my part. Okay, here we go. The rest of the story. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, uh, though Jesus himself didn't baptize them. His disciples did. So he left Judea uh, and returned to Galilee, and he had to go through Samaria on the way. And eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there, our well. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. You can stand there. You can stand by the well. And soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and the two of them were alone because his disciples had gone into town. And what happened then was a very interesting conversation. Please give me a drink. She's living water. She's not the woman. Oh. <laughs> here, Ed, hold this. Hold this, hold this. Take this, take this. No, no, she's here. She's here with you. She knows what she's doing. She's done this once already. Please give me a drink. You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? If you only knew the gift of God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, and this well is very deep. So where and how would you get this living water? And more than that, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and animals enjoyed? I mean, who do you think you are? Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the living water, (laughs) I will give will never be thirsty again. It becomes fresh and a bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, give me this living water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Okay, go get your husband. I don't have a husband. (laughs) She doesn't have a husband, obviously. (laughs) Just make that clear. You are right. You don't have a husband, for you've had five husbands. In real life, she doesn't have five husbands either. I just want to clarify that. And you aren't even married to the man that you are living with now. She lives with her family in real life. Just to clarify that. You certainly spoke the truth on stage. Sir, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Jerusalem, where our ancestors worshipped? Believe me, dear woman. The time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one that you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when truth, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him in that way. For God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. I know the Messiah is coming, 
the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. <laughs> I am the Messiah. Yeah! Can we give them a hand, please? Thank you, thank you. And the Oscar goes to Eddie for being the best well ever. Right. It's really hard to be a well, you know? You have to, like, embrace the stones and stay still for long periods of time. Okay, so now what I want you to do is I want you to turn to someone next to you, close by, a family member, a friend, or a new person, and I want you to share with them one thing or an observation that you had. Something that you saw in that you may not have noticed before. It's a really familiar story, but it may be something that you're like, hmm, that was interesting, or oh, I had a question about that, or I didn't know that. So go ahead and talk just for a few moments. Cool. Okay. All right. Are there any individuals who are brave enough to share what they noticed? Anyone? Want to raise your hand and venture? Or what they shared with their person? Okay. Uh, let's go, Betsy. Betsy said Jesus asked a lot of questions. Yes, Jesus did ask a lot of questions, okay? All right, Mauricio, here in the front. Samaritan woman had faith, right, that Messiah would come. Right, she knew that. She knew that. Okay, Valerie, I think your hand went up, right? Oh, wait, someone in the back. With a shoe con? Oh, yeah, yeah, what's up? Oh, this is a good one. Normally, in, in miracles or stories of Jesus, Jesus will say, don't tell anyone who I am. But he tells this woman, I am the Messiah. He reveals his identity to her, right? Okay, anyone else? Yeah, yeah. So he addresses her, right, as a woman. Yeah, yeah, he tells her, that's right. Yes, yes. And on Jew, yeah, we're going we're gonna to talk about that in a second. Yes, Chris. Oh, we noticed the living water was outside the well. Yes, that's actually a really profound revelation, right? The kind of living water we're talking about is not what you find inside wells. Yeah, okay. Anyone else? Any last thoughts? Okay, living water being more representative of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And Nina did a great job, right? Because she twirled around. She came alive. Okay, so there's a lot. There's a lot of stuff that we can pull from this story. Thank you for uh, engaging with that. Ignatius was really big on the imagination. All right, there are spiritual practices. And when we go through scripture, it's really, really helpful to look at these things from a lot of different places. Now, I think that this story, uh, I'm going to say that it reveals three things. Okay, we're going to go through this very, very quickly. I think that this story reveals, one, something about us. Secondly, something about Jesus. And thirdly, something about the church. Well, the kind of community that God wants us to be. All right, so the first thing that it reveals is something about us. Now, when people go through this, where they see this story, uh, Ignatius said that it's really helpful when we read the Bible to kind of imagine, right? Like, where do I find myself resonating with? Which character do I resonate with in this story as I read? Right? He, he had this activation of the imagination and engaging the text. And it's interesting. When you do this, when most people do this, they will either be Jesus, right? Because who doesn't want to be Jesus? We all want to be Jesus. Or they'll be the well. Or they'll be living water. But very few people say, I'm the Samaritan woman. Very few people identify with his character. Yet I believe, I'm going to make this argument, that this Samaritan woman represents us in some way. That we are all like her. She represents a very important part of our human existence, of our humanity. Okay? And so the first way I think that she represents us is that she's an outsider. Right? We are outsiders, and she is an outsider. She was a Samaritan. 
That was mentioned in our group sharing, right? And the Samaritans did not get along with the Jews, okay? The history is that the Samaritans were actually Jews centuries before who had been overtaken and conquered by Assyria. And when Syria came and they established their reign, there were five nations that kind of um, intermixed with those Jews. And those Jews assimilated culture and religious practices, and so what you had was a group of Jews who had been um, uh, enculturated and assimilated uh, these things from Assyria, and then you had Jews who stayed true, right, to the Jewish way. And then fast forward to Jesus' time, and you have now these two groups of people, and they hated each other, all right? The Jews thought that Samaritans were dogs. They were called half-bred pagans. You did not talk to a Samaritan. You did not touch a Samaritan. You did not eat with a Samaritan. You didn't ask help from a Samaritan. It's really hard for us to get a sense of what that was like, but in some ways it's kind of like for those who were alive during the time when the civil rights movement and all that stuff was happening, it's very similar, right? You just didn't talk to certain groups of people. You didn't cross certain lines. That was kind of what it was. And what we see is that when she's a Samaritan woman, that there are social and political and cultural things that she is then defined by. She's seen that way. That's a part of her identity. And we all, in some way, have these filters, right? Whether you're Democrat or Republican or you're black or you're white or you're Asian or Hispanic or whether you're any of these things, um, what you realize is that there is a tendency for these external factors to become a part of our identity. They're a part of who we are. And people can't separate those things from us, right? In the world, you are judged if you, if you vote for Trump or if you didn't. You are judged if uh, you have a lot of money or you don't. There are these things that influence her, okay? So she's a Samaritan. The second thing is that she's a woman. And women in that time were not treated well. They had less rights than men, right? It was a patriarchal society, And she was judged by her gender in terms of her capability and her role in life. And then we also see that she had this quote-unquote ungodly lifestyle. What's so funny about that is that she knew religion, but it didn't match with her life. Now, I want you to imagine that, right? She was probably from a small town, and she probably like knew all of her neighbors and all of her friends. And there's an interesting thing that happens there. They probably knew everything about her. I grew up in a town called Colleen. It was small enough. It was, it was by an army base called Fort Hood. But it was small enough that everyone knew everything about me. So if I had a crush on someone, by Sunday morning, Sister Johnson was talking to me about it. She just knew. And sometimes she was like, I'll pray for you in that endeavor. Go get her a flower, a carnation. God be with you. Right? Sometimes I would come and I would know someone. Uh, I'd be like, oh, you know, I'd like this girl. And then Sister Johnson would say, mm, I don't know about that one, J.D., be careful of that one there, young man. Lord, keep you from evil. <laughs> Just kidding. But that's what she'd say, right? Small town. Now imagine, this woman, she had six different lovers. What did they say about her when she was walking around her village? What did they say about her as she was uh, getting water or getting food? What was her reputation? I'm going to let go of this. We're, we're, we're foregoing it. It's like dying or something. Be gone and released. Imagine the reputation that she had. 
And some of us, like this woman, right, we're judged by our current culture standards. We're judged by our gender. We're judged by others for mistakes of the past. And we feel unseen, ostracized, dehumanized, longing for life deep within. And we do exactly what this woman does, right? We fill our lives with things that don't satisfy. It's easy to say, oh, she was such a sinner. But what if we actually looked at this woman and said, you know what? Maybe, maybe, she wasn't, maybe she wasn't such a broken individual, but maybe it was just that she was hungry, longing for connection. I've found that in my journey and the journeys of others, that our sins are usually connected to our deepest longings. And so this woman probably wanted connection. She wanted relationship. She couldn't find it in the first one, or the second, or the third, or the fourth. She just kept going. Money, sex, and power, right? These are things that we build our life and our identity into. These are things that, like, we struggle with. If you struggle with pride, so this is what's funny. If you know someone who's arrogant or cocky, they they talk about themselves, they build themselves up, I've found that those individuals are usually the most insecure people. And what they really want is just simply to be seen, to be recognized. If someone struggles with um, lust or pornography, It's a cry for intimacy. That's what they want. That's what they really long for. I grew up doing martial arts as a kid, and uh, it's really funny because when you go to a tournament and you're fighting against someone, you can get a good sense for who's good and who's not. And it's very, very simple. The guy who's in the center, like practicing and telling everyone how he's going to beat everyone and win, is not the guy you have to be careful of. He's totally not confident. He says he is, but he's really not. The person that you have to be really careful for is the person who's sitting in the corner and they don't say a word because they're secure in who they are and in their abilities, right? And so our sins are connected to our deepest longings. And so there are these things that we struggle with, that we deal with, but they're mostly signs of the things that we really, really long for and want. And lastly, like this woman, we hide the things that God wants to free us from. When Jesus says, go get your husband, she tells the truth. She has no husband. But she doesn't tell it fully. It's like she doesn't want to reveal this area of her life that God wants to bring deliverance to. Now, you know what? We do that all the time. I do that all the time. When God is knocking on my heart and he's saying, I want to do something about this particular area, I would much rather ask him a religious question, a theological inquiry. Where should we worship? How should we worship? rather than let him in. And so this reveals something about us. She says something about our human existence, our, our identity. Now, this passage says something about Jesus. And this is what it says about Jesus. It says that he comes to us exactly where we are. The scripture says that he had to go to Samaria, right? Now, that is a true statement, but it's also not a true statement. The way that things were positioned was that you had Galilee up here, you had Judea here, and you had Samaria in the middle, and people went around Samaria, to go from Galilee to Judea. They completely avoided the Samaritans. Jesus chooses to walk right through. He chooses to go right to this woman. He chooses to go to her in the light of the day, which is completely different from what Nicodemus, the religious leader, did in the previous chapter before. He comes to Jesus, what? In the dark of night. He doesn't want his reputation to be ruined. But Jesus goes to her. He finds her. He chooses to talk to her. And you know, when he says woman, 
right? You're not telling the truth. A lot of people think like, oh, he's just like calling her out. That phrase is the same phrase he used when he addressed his mother at the wedding in Cana. Mother, woman, it's not my time, he says to her. It's the same phrase. It's a friendship. It's a kinship. It's an intimacy. And in that, we see that Jesus invites us into a relationship of grace. He asks a lot of questions. This passage, this conversation starts because he actually asks her for water. Can you imagine that? The Son of God who created water, who walks on it, asks for water. Was he thirsty? Perhaps, yes. But I think what Jesus really wanted more than anything is that he wanted access. Into her heart, into her life. See, the nature of grace is radically invitational. What we see in a God who loves us is mutual vulnerability. God does not ask you to lower your heart without him lowering his He comes and he puts himself in a vulnerable position and says, will you give me water? Now, when I was in college, I uh, took this class called Interpersonal Communication, and it was a way for us to uh, learn about how to talk to members of the opposite sex and and be in relationships, things like that. It was a pickup class, okay? That's what it was. It was a dating class, and we had 500 students who took it. Now, we learned about pickup lines, and what we learned was that uh, there are pickup lines that go something like this, right? You have like a sugar packet, and you throw it on the table, and then you like look at the girl, and when she notices, you're like, hey, you dropped your name tag. That's one, okay? Another one is like, um, you know, you see, a, you see a girl, right? And then you're like, you're like, whoa. You're like, whoa. And you're kind of like blinded. And she's like, what? And you're like, did it hurt? And she's like, what? What do you mean? Like, when you fell from heaven, did it hurt? <laughs> yeah. That's another one. I had a friend who used this line. He actually said this to a girl. He said, if you were a booger, I'd pick you. <laughs> okay? And it worked. I can't believe that it worked, but it actually worked. He said this line, and the girl gave him his number, and, you know, they went on a date and stuff, and it was fine. But here's the thing. All right, we learned in Dr. Daly's class, these pickup lines are horrible. But you know what's funny? The best pickup lines go something like this. Hey, do you know what time it is? Or um, let's say you're at the gym and you're working out, it's really empty. Like, man, it looks really empty in here today. That's kind of weird, right? Or like um, you're standing by the bus, you know, and uh, you're just like, gonna be late again. Dang. They're just little phrases that give access. They're the most effective. Now, what's funny about this story is that Jesus comes to this woman at the well at noontime. In the first century, it was a common practice for, for suitors to approach women at wells. I'm not saying Jesus was hitting on this woman, don't get me wrong. But he comes to her and says, can I just have some water? He's asking for access into her life. That is the nature of Jesus. He does not force his way into your heart. Grace is radically invitational. What is the question that Jesus is asking you this morning, that he's been asking you? I just want to come in. I just, I just want access into your heart, into your life. You know, when Jesus comes to me, I feel like... Um, Someone who comes to visit our house, right? It's very similar. Let's say Jesus comes to like my home of my heart and he's knocking on the door of my heart and he wants to come inside and I'm like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, like the house is a mess. We haven't folded the laundry because the baby, she's just, what, I just don't have time. She's taking everything out and there's food all over the kitchen and my wife, I think she looks beautiful but she hasn't done her hair so they're gonna think I'm a horrible husband. I'm not helping enough, right? I gotta get stuff together. I gotta put my life in order before I let someone inside my home. 
Now, what's funny is that spiritually, we do the same thing, don't we? I do the same thing. Jesus, I don't want to let you in my heart. I don't want to let you in the house of my soul. I've got to fix myself first. I've got to clean myself first. And he sits there just knocking. Will you let me in? Hey, don't worry about that. Let me come in and help you clean it. Let me come in and help you clean it. Let me do that for you. Grace is radically invitational, and we see that about Jesus. And this is the last thing that we see. We see something about community. All right, we see Jesus going out of his way to come to this Samaritan woman, this woman who is unseen, on the margins, pushed away, judged by her world. Jesus comes to her, and he has, this is the longest conversation in the book of John. And he reveals his identity to this woman. He says, I'm the Messiah. What a gift he gives to her. We see this radical love. And, and, and this is the thing. To worship in spirit and in truth, this is what it means. To worship in spirit means that we, like Jesus, should not be people who look at external factors. But we look at the heart and we look at the transformation of the spirit. For those people who have been transformed by God's love and renewed in our spirits, then we look at other people of the world and we don't say, oh, you're poor, you can't be with us. Oh, oh, you struggle with your sexual identity, you can't be with us. Oh, oh, you're black, you can't be with us. Oh, you voted for Trump, you definitely can't be with us. We don't do that here in the church. We say you're an image bearer. The breath of God was blown into you. You can be with us. It's okay to not be okay. Right? Not that we're not going to be okay, not okay forever, because Jesus wants transformation. What's the promise that she receives? She receives living water. That's what he wants to give to us. And so we see people in spirit, right? But we see people in truth. We're honest about who we are and who God is. We're broken people in need of grace, and he transforms us. And that is a gift that we can give to each other in community. The church is called to be a place that is thriving in love and in spirit and in truth. It has very little to do with music and everything to do with who we are because honestly, if we love the world that way, if we loved each other that way, that brings glory to God so much more than you can imagine. So we're going to go to communion and I just want to challenge you, um, maybe lead you, invite you to consider three confessions Okay, there's just three. And this is the first one. The first one is, I've never let Jesus into my life and I want to say yes. Maybe you've been in the church for a while. Maybe you were in church and you're back. Maybe you've heard this stuff, but you've never said, you know, I want him to be the Lord of my life. Grace is here for you today. He's not going to force his way. He just wants access. You just have to say yes. Maybe that's the confession you have this morning. The second confession is, You know, I fill my life with things that don't satisfy. Reputation and pride and money and power and lust and all of these things that just don't fill me and I hunger for living water. If that's you, grace is here today. Rivers of life that are promised can be real as Christ comes into your heart. Maybe the third confession is, I repent for not loving like Jesus. I want to love like Jesus I want to love the Samaritan women, men, children, people in my world who I should have no business hanging out with according to the world standards, but in the love of Christ, be a friend. Extend kindness. Maybe your confession is, I want to love like Jesus. I want to say, God, forgive me for not living according to that grace. We're going to have communion in a moment. 
And the instructions for communion are really simple. You're going to come to the lines. You're going to take a piece of bread and a cup of juice and then go back to your seats and we're going to take it all together. Uh, There's gluten-free options available in the back for those um, who need that and it's relevant for. For children who are not ready to take communion yet, there's grapes at each station and moment of blessing for them. Before we go into communion, uh, Damien's going to keep playing. We're going to have a moment of silence. And then I'll pray and then we'll enter in. And I just want to say this. Regardless of what your confession is, Jesus' words are the same. Come just as you are. I have living water. Living water for you that will give you life. Over and over and over again, I will give you life. Let's enter into silence.